That was good. It's real good. So um, we are in a series called Fantastic Beast, and this is the fourth in that series. Did everybody have a good day yesterday? Good day yesterday? Yeah, we had we had a pretty pretty good pretty good day yesterday. Um, Aurora graduated from high school yesterday, so that's good. And um, it was a, it was a fun fun time, wasn't it? Yeah. The fun, fun time. There was a, a lady that, that spoke um, from the school board, and you couldn't get more country than her. I mean, she was country. She, she talked. It was, it was uh, really good. So had a great time. Proud of Aurora. Proud of all our graduates, but Aurora's my favorite. Okay, so <laughs> fantastic beasts and where to find them. Um, there are different modes of transportation, right? Different ways you can get places. And um, there we go. That was up to 75. Whew. Yeah. So here's a mode of transportation that I prefer. This would be Magnum P.S. Ferrari. I've told you that before, but I just want to keep that kind of in front of myself. Here's the next mode of transportation. This is a moped, not a moped. Some people call it moped, but they're mispronouncing that. But um, moped is what that is. Um, I, I have come to find out that maybe the guy that passed me on the road a couple of weeks ago maybe altered his a little bit to go 55 instead of 35. Maybe took some of the governors off or something. Um, but it still made the kind of, you know, b noise when it passed me. Yeah, I don't know where he recharges that at, but there you go, the little hamsters. Um, <laughs> So the next mode of transportation is one that I'm really fascinated with, and um, I think it's one of the best spaceships that we've ever had, and that's the space shuttle. It is actually, if you do some research on it, it is the cheapest way to get to outer space. It is the cheapest way to build stuff in outer space. It is the cheapest way that we have to... um, to even put satellites into orbit and all that kind of stuff. It's really cheap to do it that way, and it's reusable. All four of those items are reusable. We have switched to something totally different, and I don't know why, and I wouldn't even want to be on a board to try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. But nonetheless, that is, that is to me, the best spaceship that we ever had. The, the idea behind the space shuttle is that somehow... Mankind can leave Earth and do something in space. This is why we, we go up. This is why we have an international space center. This is why we tried to get to the moon, and we did get to the moon. By the way, do you know there's only two types of countries in the world? Did you know that? Those that use metric and those that been to the moon? Just, just wanted to, yeah, let you know that. Does it use me? Yeah. Anyway, so so here's here's space. So we want to leave Earth. So the new thing, at least the last couple of years, and you know this, is to try to get to Mars. So this is a concept art, the concept art of the um, spaceship that they want to send to Mars. And there's different facets of that. I'm not going to get into all that, but that's kind of kind of neat. Um, been talking to several people, and the problem isn't getting to Mars, necessarily. The problem is getting back. 
is, is the problem from Mars. But nonetheless, that's kind of, kind of exciting. I the reason we want to leave is probably because of achievement, probably because of population. It'd be nice to be on another planet, maybe. Um, I'm not sure if that will ever really happen uh, or not. We probably will make it maybe to Mars, but I don't know if there will be a colony or not. I'm not sure if all that's going to happen. Um, there's some biblical reasons for that, but that's not the message uh, for, for today. So, have you ever felt like you wanted to leave somewhere? Yeah. You know, one in the back has felt like they wanted to leave somewhere. Have you ever felt like you wanted to leave somewhere, or leave, a, leave a job, or, or leave something like that? Forbes magazine listed some reasons why people left their job in uh, 2016. I just wanted to read you a couple of the ones that I thought was very interesting. There was actually 40 of them. These just jumped out on the page to me. So here's the first one. Someone left because her boss lost the dog she had given to him. One person quit because he hated the carpet. A worker did not like the color of the walls. She left, this person, left because she hated the lighting in the building. This guy quit because he didn't like the way the office smelled. I do not know what type of deodorant those people were using, but nonetheless, the smell was, the smell was bad. Here's the last one. An individual did not like the sound of cabinets being slammed. Oh, come on, people. You can laugh. This is okay. It's okay. Reasons that people, I guess you might be sad. Maybe this isn't funny to you. Maybe you're just sad about this. This is kind of sad and funny at the same time. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you that. But reasons that people left their jobs. So, why leave? Sometimes the reason that we leave is not because of positive reasons. It's not because we want to get to a planet. It's not because we want to get to somewhere else. Sometimes the reason that we want to leave is because we just feel like we're not needed there anymore. The, the situation in the office or the place and the politics or whatever has gotten so tough that we just want to go somewhere else and have a fresh start. Sometimes we feel like, you, you may feel like that you are forced to leave a particular place. Nobody notices you, nobody talks to you, nobody, and you could, the list could go on and on and on. So with that in mind, both modes of transportation and leaving somewhere, I would like you to turn into your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel, in, in the Bible, is what I would like to say is the, the most different of all the books, of all the 66 books. Um, it is probably one of the toughest to read in terms of what is this guy saying? What is he seeing? What is going on here? Um, if you're a brand new Christian, it's probably not the first book you should read. 
Um, it's definitely profitable, but it, it, is, it is really kind of odd, the whole book of Ezekiel, even though, even though it's really powerful as well. So Ezekiel chapter 10 says this, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the men clothed in linen, Go among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, and fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. Now, the beast that we're going to talk about today, or the living creature, is called a cherubim. Now, a lot of people, when you hear the word cherub, think of a little baby with wings, and he's kind of cute, but that's not exactly what a cherub is. In fact, a cherub looks much differently. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, it describes how their face looks like this. Well, go to the next one. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on their right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. So you have a human face, you have a face of a lion, you have a face of an ox, and you have a face of an eagle all together. It might would look something like this. Of course, we can't see the fourth side, right? But you can see the three sides on the two, at least on the side there. So these are kind of odd sort of creatures, these cherubims are, and, and they're odd in the way that they look. Now, if you can go back two screens... These cherubim are actually on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They were made to go on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So we know it better than probably any other angel what these types of angels look like because God gave the directions for them to be created to be placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So that's, that's where they are. And at least um, the pictures and the rendition of the, of the Ark, we can see what they look like. So back to the other picture. So, verse 3 says this. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. And when the man went in, a cloud filled the inner court. Now that is talking about the temple. It's talking about the temple. The inner court being the inner court, of course. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim were heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So these things are loud. They have wings, and they flap them, and they make a huge, huge noise. Now, something you might need to know at this point is that cherubim in Scripture are always around the throne of God. They're always around him, with one exception. And that would be in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and he sent one down there to guard the Garden of Eden to make sure they didn't get back in. So these cherubim are very powerful creatures, very powerful beings that God has, and they're always around him at some level. Verse 6, and when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels and between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. 
And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim. So what we can ascertain from here is not only do they have wings in these spaces, but they also have a hand of a, of a human, hand of a human. The next thing that we can ascertain from this is that beside them are these wheel-like things. And so he begins to describe these wheels. It says, and I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling burl. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. So a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, notice body, their rims and their spokes and their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. Now, at this point in time, the author is not describing a cherubim. He's describing the wheels. So from this verse, this is a different creature, okay? Has a lot of eyes, also has wings. Really, really odd. Verse 13, as the four wheels they were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels, and everyone had four faces. Every one of these wheels had four faces. Now, I don't want you to miss that. You have cherubim who have four faces. It's a human, a lion, an ox, and a eagle. Very good. So then you have these wheels that also have four faces. Now, let me pause here a moment. The New American Standard, the King James, and the ESV actually translates this correctly. The NIV inserts cherub here, and cherub is not in the original language because it's not describing a cherub, all right? So verse 14, everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a what? A cherub. Now, that means that this face of the cherub had how many faces to it? Four. So you already have this cherub face with four faces, and then you have three to add to it, right? You have a human face, and you have the face of a lion, and you have the face of an eagle. What I think is interesting, especially because this is prophecy and this is also vision and God never does anything wrong, is four plus three equals seven which is the number of completion. It's pretty, pretty interesting. So, and the cherubim mounted up. Now, if you're wondering what they mounted up on, they mounted up on these wheels. Now, I cannot begin to describe to you how they mount up and how they ride these things. But this would be the equivalent of you and me getting on a horse and going somewhere, okay? So they, these cherubim, even though they have wings, 
have supernatural vehicles that they also get on board with and they fly places with. So these wheels are a transportation sort of instrument that has been created. And so it has a lot of eyes, it has faces, it has all this kind of stuff, and these cherubim get on, get on top of it. it it's pretty, pretty interesting. I, I looked for a picture of this, like one of them riding a wheel or maybe wheels on the side or something cool like that. Google, Google let me down, so I, I just couldn't find, couldn't find anything. But this is pretty, pretty spectacular, pretty spectacular. So verse 17, when they stood still, these stood still, and when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures were in them. That was a reference to Ezekiel chapter 1. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. That means that the glory of the Lord went out from the inner sanctum of the temple, went out with them, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. With the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the... Um, These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Cherubith Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, each had four wings, and underneath their wings, the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appearance I had seen by the Chebar, sorry, Chebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So, what is happening here is you have the temple. You have the temple in the Old Testament. God resides in the Ark of the Covenant. Is everybody, everybody with me on that? These angels, these cherubim, have come down out of heaven. They've mounted their riding thing, these wheels. They've mounted them. They've come out of heaven, and they've come to the Holy of Holies. God has exited the Holy of Holies. He, his glory has exited the temple in Jerusalem. He, they, he has come, and now these cherub are escorting God back to heaven, escorting God and his glory back to heaven. Yeah, see, well, secret service, except for maybe God, God can, Mike can take care of himself. Trump, probably not, but, but God, God can take care of himself. It's, it's interesting that God um, does this. It's interesting that God creates creatures like this to do this sort of, of thing. I think in this passage of scripture, it's meant for impact. It's meant for impact. In other words, what you're supposed to be overwhelmed with is not the way that these creatures look necessarily, but the fact that God has created them in a magnificent sort of way. It's not to be overwhelmed with whatever they're riding on, that we really can't visualize how they ride on it, but it's to actually look at this and say that God can create things that are even more intrinsic than what we see in the natural world. The reason that this is supposed to have impact is not only because these creatures are absolutely amazing, but because God's glory is more amazing than that. It's to make an impact that for some reason God's glory and this exodus 
from the temple in Jerusalem is a major marking point in in Israel's life. It is basically God exiting their country. It's basically God exiting their place of worship. It is actually God leaving and going somewhere else and leaving the temple without his presence and without his glory and without his power and without him, period. Now, what in the world would make God leave his temple? Sin. (laughs) Thank you. And for the rest of the message, it's going to be Roger Miller. The, the security guy yesterday, not the security, yeah, the security, the police officers thought he was the pastor of this church yesterday when the alarm went off, so we might as well just let him do that. Yeah, it's sin. Roger is absolutely correct. It is sin. I think it's some other things, to that relate to sin as well. And I'm going to share those with you. And the reason I think this is important is because I know for a fact that God is in this church. I know he is. I never want to get to the place in this church where God feels like he has to leave. I never want to get to the place in this church to where our focus gets off and on ourselves and so forth and so on to where God exodus, does an exodus out of our building and out of our lives. The reason this church is special is not because of the pastor. It's not because of the elders. It's not because of the deacons, and it's not because of you. It is because God is here. And we are a group of people that want to focus on him, okay? So this, to me, is kind of a warning to make sure that we do not go in the same direction, all right? So... I think the first reason that he left is because the children of Israel began to focus on themselves rather than God. They began to focus on what they wanted to do culturally rather than what God wanted them to do culturally. Or maybe a better way to put that is how God wanted them to live in a culture, okay? It all started back when they decided to get a king. And God said, you don't need a king. And they said, we want a king. And they kept saying, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And finally, God gave them a king. And that was their, their kind of second or third step away from him. They began to want what the world had. They began to want the way the culture is and adapt to the culture rather than adapting to the God that created them and his holiness. And any time a church begins to start adapting to culture rather than God, they're missing the mark. The moment that a church decides to follow their own way and the own, their own way of doing things rather than God's is the moment that a church begins to depart from God. And God will not stay in a place where he is not being pursued, where he is not honored, where he is not, he is not the focus. He will not stay with a group of people that just live for themselves. So this does have to do with sin. You see, sin is our detachment from what God really wants for our lives. The very definition of sin is something that you do that is against God's holiness, that's against his righteousness. 
The moment that you and I begin living for ourselves, whether it's we want to achieve power or whether we're committing adultery, whether we want to just have this in our own way in a particular way, or whether we are just just kind of submitting to him, whatever it may be, I think I messed up on that part, but let's just erase that. Nonetheless, whatever it may be, when we start living for ourselves is the moment that God is no longer in control and he does leave. He does leave. This is a national thing, a huge thing that is happening here in Ezekiel. But God leaves churches all the time. God is not in a church that fights with each other. God is not in a church that, that has people that think they are God and they're not going to follow God. They're going to follow what they want and their traditions and their way. God is not in a church like that. God is in a church where the people focus on God and lives like, and those people live like he wants them to live. God is in that church. I think God also left because there was no one speaking his words. There were priests that had become so much a part of the culture, they began to preach what the culture said was right and what the culture said was wrong. If I ever start preaching what the culture says is right and it's against the Bible, that is the moment you need to vote me out. Come on. I do not want that to happen. That is not my goal in life, right? It's not my goal in life. But the moment that we start promoting what the culture is saying that's against the Bible is the moment that that church becomes something else. It's just a meeting place for a political rally. It's just a meeting place to, to, for sinfulness and to promote sin. It is no longer a place that promotes God and his holiness. It, it, no one was speaking God's words. This is God's word. What we ascertain from it and, and talk about is, yeah, I just learned that word ascertain, evidently. Um, used it 12 times. If I'd stopped at seven, that would have been perfection. But nonetheless, we, we bring it out and we give it to people in a very livable sort of way. And I'll tell you, there's a lot in the Bible that is countercultural. If you're preaching the word of God, if you are believing the word of God, if you are following God and his word and he is present, your church, your life is going to be countercultural to everybody that you run into contact with, everybody. But it is where we should be. I would rather have a church in the presence of God than a church that is popular in the community. I would rather people look at the church and see God's love than just kind of shift into the political stance of whatever's happening so that we can fit in. Our call is not to fit in with the culture. Our call is to call people to salvation to fit into God's culture and his way. God left them because there was no one speaking his words. There was no one living righteously. There was no one serving him. There's no one serving him. Were they coming to the temple and they, were they doing their sacrifices? Yes, but was it with the right heart? No. Was it for some other reasons? Yes, it was. Some of the priests were eating stuff they shouldn't eat. 
Some of the people were coming just to, I don't know, just to gain political advantage. I don't know what they were doing. But they were not coming for the right reasons. And so, so no one's serving him. You see, if you serve God, there's a couple of things that go, go with that. You're not worried about recognition. You want him to be recognized. I think that's the first, that's the first thing. Some people serve in church so that they can be recognized, so that they can gain some, some sort of power. No, 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 no. That's not why you serve in church. You serve in church because God loves you, and you want him to be recognized not only in your life, right, but in the community. You want people to see God, to see Jesus, to see the Holy Spirit. It is all about the one that created us. Come on. It is not about you. So we don't serve, we serve him. And so there was no one serving him. I think that's why they left. And I also think, just based on scripture, that the reason that God left the temple is because no one was in awe of God anymore. God had become commonplace. Oh yeah, there's the temple, Ark of the Covenant, but it's just commonplace. It's just what we do, you know. There was no like, oh my goodness, God is amazing. I think part of the reason for this vision and part of the reason to introduce these type of creatures that are that are on the board here was to say that God is more magnificent and, cre and can create things that are beyond your imagination, that God can create things far more exceedingly better, if you will, than what you can see here on this earth. The reason for this vision that Ezekiel received was to show that God is still awesome and is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be glorified. He's worthy to actually, once you think about him, to step back and think, oh my goodness, he is awesome. So these people had lost the awe of God. They didn't have it anymore. And you and I, Farmington Baptist Church cannot lose how great God is and what we're actually here to do. We are following God, we are following Jesus, and we are promoting him and him only. That is what we're promoting. So, with that in mind, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. So we'll begin reading with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, Isaiah is saying, I'm in awe of what I saw. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. That is a different angel altogether. So we talked about cherubim, which are pretty, pretty amazing creatures, kind of, kind of odd. But now we get to seraphim. This is the Hebrew word for seraphim. You read Hebrew from right to left, so it's seraphim. If you go to the first three letters, not the last two, first three, that word is seraph, S-A-R-A-P, if you were to transliterate it. That word in the Hebrew means serpent, which I think is interesting. So the basis for seraphim is this word, Hebrew word serpent, seraphim. Film meaning a lot of them. So we have these, these seraphim that are up in heaven. They have six wings. Some cover their head, some cover their, their feet, some are just out on the side. Verse 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So a couple of things here. First of all, this is probably, at least the artist's rendition, of how a seraphim actually looks. Hands, covering of the face with the little wings up here and covering of the lower body, if you notice it wrapping around, and then the big wings on the sides. So that's a seraphim. This little guy right here on the, on the mountain is actually a rendition of Isaiah. Um, small, long hair, beard, in a robe. Okay, the contrast tickles me a little bit. I think this contrast is important, though, for a couple reasons. One is, humankind is pretty important because God puts value on them. He died for them. But second... If you think you're even close to being big, as big as God, look at this picture and think of the seraphim. How many of you would like to take that thing on? I guarantee you, you would lose. He's huge. He's a warrior. He, he does the bidding of God. He has power that has been given to him by God. Do you know that up in heaven we will be able to judge seraphim? But that is not today. But any moment that we think that we are equal with God, we need to think of these creatures. We need to think of these seraphs. We need to think of these cherubim. We aren't that powerful. We are small in the scheme of things. This other passage of Scripture tells us another reason that we are not necessarily worthy to be equal with God. 
verse 5 says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We are small because of our sin. This is a being that is perfect in every way. Does the bidding of God anytime he's called. And we are sinful and in need of a savior. Anytime we think that church should be about us, our life should be about us, something should be about us, is the moment that we need to remember, wait, there's other beings beside of us and we are kind of small in the scheme of things. And God is much bigger than we are. This life is about him. In fact, we cannot take care of our sin on our own. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having his hand burning in a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, this is a different way to atone for sin than we've ever seen, right? It's a coal from the altar. It touches, and the sin's taken away. We have to have someone outside of us take away our sin. These are all great reasons for everything in a church and in a worship environment to be all about God and his magnificence. We can't even come close to taking his place. And if we think we can take his place, and we th- if we think we can get our own way, if we think that's what we are supposed to push, we just need to be reminded of how small we are and what this thing really is about. Amen? It is about Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and him alone. That vision of what a church is about and what Christians are supposed to be helps us not adapt to a culture that says certain sins are okay now when God is saying that they are wrong and sinful. It is never going to be right for you to steal, even if the culture says it's okay for you to steal from the rich because you don't have any. It is never going to be right for a man to be with a man and a woman to be with a woman. The culture says it's right. God set up marriage here. These are not concepts that I have made up. It's not concepts that you have made up. It's concepts that the God that created us said, this is the way things should be, and this is how you should act. And he knows what he is doing. When it comes to church and the way a church is ran and and the people that are called and and the believer priest in, in in all the service and stuff, God knows what he is doing when he sets it up. And even though it's a simple setup, he knows exactly how to set things up so that they will survive and be, and be great. God knows what he is doing. The moment that we think we know more than God is the moment that we err and the moment that we get our eyes off of, off of him and we are one step closer to him leaving us. Now, if you're visiting today, I don't see any problems with anything that I'm telling you here in the church. This church, if you're visiting, I think has a focus on Jesus and everybody in this room agrees with what I'm saying. There's no conflict here in that regard. We do struggle with some sin, but to be honest with you, we're always going to struggle with sin. Right? We are always going to struggle with sin. And I would rather fight the fight of defeating sin, though I already have the victory and you do too, I'd rather fight that in a church than politics. I would rather fight the things that we go through in this life that are tough 
than political stuff all day long because that is where it's at. That's when you know that you're living for the right purposes. So what happens? It's Isaiah here. Check this out. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, why is he trying to send someone? One, because he's already left the temple. His presence is already gone. Two, because culture, the culture, the human culture, needs somebody to go to them to speak the truth to them. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. That should be the attitude of everybody in this church. Lord, it's all about you. It's all about your magnificent. Here I am, send me and show me what I need to do. I want to do whatever you want me to do for you. It should be our attitude. Now, this, of course, is, is um, what we would consider Isaiah's call to ministry, okay? I want to kind of go over just in a few minutes what different types of calls, how God calls people in a different way. First is visions. In scripture, he gives people visions of what they should do, and they respond, Right? Second is appearances. God has been known to send an angel to somebody to tell them what to do. Jesus has been known to appear before people to tell them what to do in Scripture. So there's appearances. The voice of God. And we're going to slow down here a minute. Sometimes God tells his people what to do. They're praying, and you hear that voice that's telling you and compelling you to do something. You may be reading his word and see something. You need to change that in your life is the voice that goes on. And this is how you need to do it. And God talks to you. You just have to be quiet enough to hear him. You have to be quiet enough to know that he is, what his voice is and how he's prompting you and how he's moving you. I would argue that God talks to people in different ways. And he still talks to you today. The way you know the difference between what he's saying and what maybe the deceiver is saying is if it matches Scripture. Scripture is the test for anything that God tells you to do. If God, for instance, tells you to go um, smack Greg Quinn upside of the face, um, I would say that that's probably not God telling you to do that, and you would be stupid to do it. Though he's very docile, he might hit you back, and if he did, it would hurt, so you better be big, Okay? There are certain things that sometimes we think God is telling us that goes against Scripture that really culture, the demons of culture are telling us to do, and it's not really the voice of God, but God calls you through his voice. Another way that God calls you is people around you tell you that you're good at something. The call of God does not always come like in a moment where God tells you you need to you need to volunteer for children's ministry. You need to volunteer for um, full-time Christian service. Sometimes people around you just say, you know what? You are really compassionate. Have you ever considered? And that is the call of God through someone else. 
An example of this in scripture is Elijah calling Elisha. You know, Elisha didn't have a vision. He didn't hear the voice of God. Didn't have anything like that. <clears throat> I get so choked up over this. He didn't have anything like that. Man, you know what? I wish trees and plants would learn that I am not a tree and I'm not a plant. That stuff is not, just quit sending it my direction. Okay, that's enough of that. Elijah went up to Elisha, put his mantle on him, and said, follow me. As far as we know, Elisha was just plowing a field one day, and Elijah showed up. And from that calling, Elisha responded and left everything to follow Elijah, and he became one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Sometimes we just need to listen to people. Parents, some of you have seen some type of ministry opportunity in your children. You need to tell them, have you ever considered being this, teaching this, going on a mission trip? Have you ever considered being involved in this in church? I think you would be really good at it. Parents should know their kids better than anyone else. Maybe you're the voice of God to call them to do something. I think that there's some kids in this church that are called to ministry. I do. And I interacted, I've interacted with them. I really think that they are called to ministry. Sometimes it's people telling you that that is actually the call of God. We often kind of wait for that type deal to happen. But here's the final reason that fits this text. Because other than visions, none of them fits this text. Sometimes you hear that God wants this done and you volunteer. Okay? Let's say that one more time because nobody talks about this. Sometimes God says that this needs to be done and you volunteer to do it. If you are sitting around waiting from some vision or some voice from God to get involved in ministry and get involved to service, that may never happen for you. But what might be happening is a volunteer card. Now, I'm not really pushing this, but I'm going to push it now. A volunteer card in your bulletin that says, church is having this. Are you going to volunteer and step forward? It might be something that you see outside. Like you pick up your children and you see some type of hole in the, in the children's ministry and you're like, man, there's something. And you say, hey, I'll volunteer to help with that problem. See, God created you with the power of choice. Choice. And he created you fairly intelligent. That didn't come out exactly the way I wanted it to come out. Sorry about that. He created us intelligent with the ability to think and make choices. All of us. We all have gifts. We all have things that we are drawn toward to do. And sometimes God just says, this is what needs to be done. And you're the person that's supposed to say, I volunteer. And when you volunteer, you realize 
that you are in the center of God's will because you made that choice. Who will go, God said. Who can I send? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. In the church, it might be in the preschool department, it might be in the children's worship, it might be in Awana, it might be worshiping here on stage and helping with the worship team, it might be vacuuming floors, there's a group of people that vacuum floors here, it might be handling the next outreach that we have when we go to take it to the streets, whatever it might be, it's in front of you to volunteer for, and God expects his children to be involved. And if it's really about God, every person in this church Every person in the church should be involved in some type of ministry. Every one of us. Here is reasons why we sometimes don't get involved. Man, I'm busy. I just, I volunteer for, for football. I volunteer for my kids in baseball. I, I volunteer for my, my kids in, in band. I, I volunteer for my kids in school. I, I have this job that just keeps going on and on and on, and, and I've got to take care of my house, and I've got to make sure money is coming in, and I've got to make sure, and, and I'm just not, and I just got all this other stuff to do. I want you to just pause a moment and tell me, who are you serving? All of those are for you or your children, Right? What service are you doing for God? What service are you doing for him? It's okay to volunteer for the football team and help them out. It's okay to volunteer for all this kind of stuff. But if you're too busy to serve God, you're too busy. I think sometimes God leaves. Not that you're not a, a Christian anymore, but he, his, he leaves his glory leaves from people because they're too busy for him. They're too busy to pray. They're too busy to study. They're too busy to serve him in some capacity. They're too busy doing a, a lot of other stuff that is very, very insignificant. So you, you come back to this is, I've got to make sure that I'm serving God in some capacity. And then... I do everything else that I'm supposed to do in my life. If you're too busy to serve, you're too busy. Look, this week, I took on a project. I took on a project. I took on a project. To a, yeah, project. So we, we have built in the back of our house, and when I say we, there was a couple people that helped. So we have built a 14 by 16 patio off my deck that I built three years ago. Off, off the back, and um, whereas we did have someone, a couple of people come and, and they did the mortar for the, for the rocks on the side, um, there, was, there was this dirt that you had to put in the middle of it because we rose it up, and, and there's this little tamper that you go like this, like that, right? And, and so you go get the dirt, and you have to lift the wheelbarrow over the wall, and then you put the wheelbarrow down, and then you dump it, and then you tap it. And then after that, it's crusher run on top of that, which my wife calls crush and run, but it's really crusher run. And um, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then after that, there's these white rocks, and then you have to build the fire pit. Anyway, it was a lot, it was a lot of work to do. 
right? And then there was a fence in the backyard that had fallen down. That's actually my neighbor's fence. And we had to build that back up. And, and then there was mulch involved. And then there's some, some pine needles that have to, I'm not going to tell you why we use the pine needles, but we use the pine needles around the house, which if you come over today, you'll see. But nonetheless, there's pine needles. And then mow the yard. And then you just get so busy. And then I have a job. I mean, I have to do this job. So my schedule I don't like my schedule to be off, but it's been off. I've worked every day. I've worked the time I'm supposed to, but anyway, it just gets busy. And then, on top of that, somebody had to graduate from high school. So then we have to do all that kind of stuff, decorate and making sure the house is, you know, and go, go to the, it's just so much stuff. But I'm telling you, if you allow your life to get that busy, to where you forget to serve God, he will leave. Though you will be saved, his glory will leave and you will not be living with his power any longer. Some of us need to look at a volunteer card. Some of us need to look for other opportunities where we have been presented to serve. And some of us need to say, here am I, Lord, send me I'm volunteering. I am going to serve you and make you first in my life, and I know that all these other things will fall into place. I have found that when you do that, the other things pan out. You really start to see what's really important in this life. And it's not the next baseball game, and it's not the next football game. It is living for Jesus getting your children to live for Jesus and seeing the fruits of that come to fruition. Amen? So, in closing, as soon as he volunteered, this is what God said. Go and say to this people, God said, go. God is just waiting for you to volunteer so that he can say, go. Let's pray.